0: Um, If we haven't met before, my name's Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hope, and today we're coming into land on our series in the Bible book of Nehemiah. Um, We love stories, don't we? As human beings, we are intriguing creatures. We love a good story, whether that be a novel that we just cannot put down, that we just think, okay, I'm just going to read another page, or a, a, a series that we might watch online that we think, just one more episode, even though you know it's time to go to bed, just one more episode. We love good stories, don't we? We love to, uh, even in this age of streaming, we still love to go to the cinema and watch things on the big screen, uh, see the car chases and the fight scenes and uh, hopefully the finally good ending at the end of it all. Yet sometimes the story doesn't end well. Sometimes we're watching a movie and we think, we just sat there at the end thinking, what did I just watch? Like, how could they end it on that note? Um, Last year I was on a long flight and... um, I watched the uh, latest James Bond film, No Time to Die. Okay, spoiler alert, James Bond finds the time to die. (laughs) James Bond dies at the end of the film. And I don't know how they're going to continue the franchise after that. They're going to have to come up with some creative way of doing that. But at the end, you're just like, how can they kill off James Bond? He's the main character. And you're thinking, what have I just watched? Sometimes a story doesn't end quite as we want it to end. And as we come into land on this uh, series in Nehemiah, we're going to see that it doesn't end in the way that we wanted it to end. In fact, really last week as we uh, finished in chapter 12, that would have been a good ending to the book of Nehemiah because the people of God have completed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah and Ezra and their friends have rebuilt the, the city. The temple has been rebuilt. The worship of God has been restored. The people have come back to the Word of God. They're coming back to what we now know as the Old Testament. They're coming back to God's Word. They're coming back under His, uh, under His rule and His commands. They're worshiping Him appropriately. There are people of prayer, and there are people of great worship and rejoicing. And we see right at the end of chapter twelve that the joy of Jerusalem could be heard from far away. That's a good ending, right? That would be a happily ever after kind of ending. And yet it doesn't end there. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you may have all kinds of ideas about what the Bible is and is not. And listen, you, you're going to need faith to, uh, to believe some of the stuff in the Bible for sure. But it, what it is not is not a bunch of fantasy tales that kind of just uh, all end well. It's very real. okay? It's full of real life and real people who fail and who row back on their promises. Because the people of God in Nehemiah had made some promises to God. They said, we're going to get back to uh, worshipping you appropriately with our relationships, the way we live out our relationships. We're not going to give away our sons and daughters to marry people from other religions. We're going to give of our finances so that the temple can continue to be operational. We're going to not work on the Sabbath day. We're going to stop working to trust you. Trust you're going to provide and as we're going to see, they row back on all of their promises. We're going to just kind of whistle-stop tour through chapter 13 of, of Nehemiah, where we read in verses uh, 6 and uh, into, just into 7 that Nehemiah was out of the city. So 12 years have passed since the events of chapter 12. 12 years have passed. So maybe for some time the people of God have been honouring him in the way that they're living. And then Nehemiah has to go away for some time. Gets called back to go uh, to be with the king of Persia, who was his boss before this. And he says this But while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. He'd returned back, and when he comes home to Jerusalem, he finds that Tobiah, his arch nemesis, has been not only allowed into the city but has actually found himself a place to live in the temple, uh, the, what, the sort of outer rooms of the temple. And then we read on into, and we see verse 10, the priests who were supposed to be kind of paid to kind of work in the temple and upkeep the worship in the temple, they're no longer getting paid and they're having to find jobs in the fields. And then in verse 15, we see that the people are working on the Sabbath. When they said, God, we're not going to do that. We're going to stop. Every Saturday, we're going to stop. We're going to down tools. I'm going to trust you. And then we see in verses 23 to 24, that the people of Israel have given their sons and daughters in marriage to those from other nations and religions. So that children are growing up without the knowledge of Hebrew. Which was a very significant thing for them because they would not have been able to understand the reading of the Torah, these first few books of the Old Testament. They wouldn't have been able to understand the worship of God's people. And so you've got a generation starting to grow up without knowledge of God. This is a really, really serious decline. There's a, there's a brutal realism to this. And Nehemiah is furious when he gets back. Like, really furious. And he starts to take action. He throws buyers stuff out. He gets a hold of it all in verse 8 and he just throws it all out. He takes a hold of uh, some people and he locks them out of the city. Those that have been working on the Sabbath, he just says, right, you're not going to be able to come back in. He starts to uh, call curses down on some people. He beats some people up. This is a mess. He pulls out some people's hair. This is absolutely crazy. There's backsliding believers. There's a really angry old guy in Nehemiah. And God is seemingly absent. And that's how the book of Nehemiah ends. It's not a happily ever after moment, is it? It's an absolute mess. It's a miserable ending. It feels like the people of God are back to square one, maybe heading towards some very serious decline once again. It's very tempting. It was, as we prepared this series, very tempting to finish on chapter 12 with a glorious picture of what the church is to be, the people of God under his word, a people of prayer, a people of worship and rejoicing in the place where they were supposed to be and the nations around hearing and seeing that God is is the true God and is good. Very tempting to end there. But we do believe that this, this book is God-breathed. We do believe that the Bible is God-breathed and profitable for us. So what are we going to draw out from this terrible ending to the book of Nehemiah today? How is this relevant for us? I'm going to draw out three things. The first is this, that compromise is possible when we lose sight of who we are. Compromise is possible when we lose sight of who we are the glories of of chapter 12, all of the great things that we saw were really based back in chapter 8 when the people of God, they came to rediscover God's word. They came back to remembering, ah yeah, we're the people of God. We're supposed to be different. We've got a great calling upon us. He's got some ways that we have to trust in, even if it doesn't make much sense. All of those glorious moments were based in that moment when they came back to remembering who they were and whose they were. And compromise came about as they took their eyes off of this. Now Tobias is allowed to live in the very house of God, the temple. He's allowed to live there. The man who had opposed Nehemiah in this whole building project, he had mocked him. He had, he had thrown scorn upon him. He had tried to stop him at every turn. He tried to trick him. He tried to lead Nehemiah into giving up the project. He's now living in Jerusalem and living in the temple. And people are seemingly okay with that. And the people had neglected tithing, giving of their money and of their resources for the upkeep of the temple. In fact, Tobias living in the rooms that were supposed to store some of that stuff. They've lost their corporate vision. They've lost that sense of who we are. They've lost that wholeheartedness that comes when you are a a people of vision. It's always the same with money. When, When we lose sight of who we are... We lose sight of, of God's purposes, our, our money kind of just follows. It's always been the same. Money has always been a, a powerful powerful thing. It's always one of the first things to be compromised on. Jesus said, Your treasure where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The reverse is true as well, isn't it? That where, where our, our heart is, there our treasure will will follow. That actually when we're kind of gripped by something, yes, our, our treasure, our time, the talents that we have will follow in giving and generosity. And they've lost sight of this and their giving has followed suit. They've neglected the Sabbath. They were supposed to be very different people that, that looked very different to the world around. The New Testament's quite relaxed on whether we are to keep the Sabbath. You can see it for yourself in Romans chapter 14 and verse 5, where the Apostle Paul is unpacking that some days are holy for some people, some are are not for others. I mean, the principle of rest and trusting in God, a very, very good thing. But it's not for us now to say, right, you must take Saturday off or Sunday off, otherwise you're disobeying God. But these people, for them, the Sabbath was, was something that God had laid down for them, not only to trust in him, but to look different so that the nations around might be a bit surprised that when they came knocking to do trading on that day, they might go, Hack, why are you not trading on the Saturday? What's all this about? You see, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' close friends and followers who went on to be a kind of father figure in the early church, he says in First Peter chapter 4 that people are surprised when you don't do the things that they do. He's saying that there's some things that people will look upon in your life and go, why are they not doing that? Why why are they not kind of going along with that banter? Or why are they not getting involved with that activity? You see, we're not called to kind of be removed from the world, but we're called to look different. I wonder, are people surprised at anything that you do or say? Do you ever give reason for those around you in your places of work or in your family that maybe don't know Jesus or in your places of education do you give reason for people to be surprised to go, oh that's a bit different I was in a conversation just a few days ago and with some friends of mine who don't know Jesus and there was a lot of joking and banter about drinking and getting drunk and the, the things that happened when they got drunk and um, I, wasn't, I wasn't laughing along with that I wasn't kind of getting involved in that. I didn't kind of throw in any kind of, well, you shouldn't do that, because that's not, that's not my part, actually. I want to lead them to Jesus. But I, I hope there might have been a bit of a, hang on a minute, he's a bit different. I hope, there's, I hope there's something like that for all of us, where people around might be surprised that we don't do the things that they do. The people of Israel were supposed to be going upstream against the flow. We, friends, are supposed to go upstream against the flow against the flow of our culture. And sadly, the people of Israel actually went along with the flow of the nations around once again. This could be us someday, friends. It could be us. It could be us in the very near future. This is quite a sobering thing to read, isn't it? We might lose sight of of who we are. We might lose sight of whose we are. We might start for the sake of convenience, for the sake of comfort, for the sake of not um, rocking the boat, as it were. We might just kind of go with the flow. We might go downstream, and we're supposed to go upstream. Vision can be lost. We can kind of just change and compromise on things to avoid trouble. First Corinthians 10 is so helpful in this, where the Apostle Paul says this, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The context of those verses is the Apostle Paul speaking about the people of Israel who had seen great and wondrous things, who had again and again seen God's miraculous hand at work, had seen him free them from slavery in Egypt, bring them through the wilderness, bring them through the the sea, Brought them into their own land. Provided for them in incredible ways. And then had turned to idols. Or even along the way had turned to other things. He's saying let this be a warning to us. Let us take heed. So so this kind of chapter 13 for us. As as unhappy an ending as it may be. Is a really good thing for us. Because it instructs us. It warns us. It shows us this could be us. We could compromise in some ways. The hottest of hot churches, the most on-fire churches, the ones that have seen and are seeing God do incredible things, are in danger of falling into compromise. It's a reality for us. It's the flow of history. It's the flow of what we've seen throughout church history, where there's always been need for reform and for churches to repent and turn back to. The simple pattern of things that are laid out for us. And it could be us, friends. We are in a battle. We, we are wonderfully, praise God, enjoying peacetime in our nation in many respects. But we, the people of God, are in a battle. The Christian life is war. It's not, it's not only war, but it's always war. We have an enemy, Satan, who wants to draw us into compromise. Wants to draw us individually and collectively into compromise. Of losing sight of who we are. Losing sight of whose we are. And into some things that will take our eyes off of who we are supposed to be. Pride comes before a fall. We read in Proverbs 16. We must not think this could never happen to us. We must not think this may never happen to our church. We can can be pulled away into some things that we shouldn't be pulled into. So secondly, the the thing I want to pull out is that we need to take compromise seriously. Nehemiah is not the perfect example for us in how to deal with compromise, but he is still an example for us in some ways. Yes, I really mean that. Okay? Yeah, he's angered in some ways, isn't he? He's moved within at what he sees amongst the people of God. He's really uh, bothered within. He doesn't just go, oh, well, these people, I'll just give up. You know, he doesn't kind of just, he's not resigned to this being the way it's going to be. He's moved from within. He's still, he's still gripped by a vision for who God's people are to be. He's still got that vision, friends. He's still pumping with it. He's not unmoved. He won't accept that it's just going to be that way. He doesn't give in to it. We can get lulled, can't we? (laughs) We can kind of think, well, yeah, I think that there's some compromise here in my life or in their life or in the life of the church. But it's probably always going to be that way. There's no point. There's no point in pushing back. There's no point in asking questions. There's no point in challenging. It's just always going to be that way. Well, Nehemiah is a good example to us. He's not afraid of, of awkwardness. It's awkward to lock people out of a city, right? It's awkward to storm into the temple and throw Tobias stuff out. Not afraid of awkwardness. I, I sometimes am afraid of awkwardness. Are you? Afraid of just making things a little bit awkward. Jesus was not afraid of awkwardness. I expect that the disciples who went around with Jesus probably winced an awful lot. Did he really just say that? Did he really? Don't pick that fight, Jesus. Don't go there. Just Let's just go on. Let's go and get some lunch. Don't, no, 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 no. There would have been a lot of like, oh, did he really say that? See, Nehemiah's not afraid of awkwardness. Jesus was not afraid of awkwardness. He was uncompromising. We read that he's full of grace and truth. So there was a, a sense in which to those that, who... Um, knew they were failures, those who knew that they needed the grace of God. Jesus showed such incredible grace to them and then he pointed them to, to walk in the ways of the truth. There's a woman who gets caught up in adultery and people are ready to stone her and Jesus challenges the crowd, says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. Come on. And they all realize None of us are without sin. But he turns to the woman and says, who's left to condemn you? Anyone? And he says, go and sin no more. There's There's an incredible grace shown to her. Undeserved favor. And then he says, come on. There's a new life for you now. Sin no more. There's grace and truth. And then there was those that thought they were the big deal. That thought they were the kind of uh, the important people whom God kind of owed some stuff to. And he was very, very happy to give them the truth. <laughs> First up, in the hope that they might come to him for grace. Not afraid of awkwardness. Not afraid to challenge what he needed to challenge. And Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, he did demonstrate righteous anger at the compromise that he saw around him. In, in three of the Gospels, we see this story depicted of Jesus entering the temple, which had been turned into a supermarket, where the, where the things of God had been neglected. And he takes a moment, okay, this is really important, you grasp this, he takes a moment to make a whip. That's not a man in out-of-control anger, is it? That's going to take a little bit of time. This is a considered move. But so, so righteously angry is he at the compromise that he sees in Jerusalem that he fashions a whip and then he drives them out of the temple. It's possible to be angry at some things and not sin. He's going to make it clear that it's not okay. There's something that we can learn from here, isn't there? Jesus didn't just live and let live, but nor did he burst with anger within. He had a vision for God's people, that was better. So, so what for us? Where do we go from here? Well, when we see compromise, are we supposed to act like Nehemiah? Yes and no. He's righteously angry. He's moved to action. He's talking to God as he goes. You see in verse 22, he says, show mercy to me, God. Help me. He's involving God in this. There's some good examples for us here. But should we be beating people up when we see compromise around us? Should we be pulling people's hair out when we see compromise in the lives of fellow Christians? Should we be people who lock people out of the church building on a Sunday morning? Or lock them out of our homes? No. Here's what the Bible has to say about challenging compromise. We're going to go on a a bit of a a whistle-stop tour of what the Bible says on this. Firstly, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, that we're not to judge those outside of the church. This is what he says. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? This is such an important thing for us, that our challenge to compromise is not to those who don't know Jesus, but actually to those who do know Jesus and who bear the name of Jesus. So we're not going around trying to correct those who are living around us who don't know him yet. Our appeal is we want you to know Jesus because he's so good. And you need to know him. He's the one who brings fullness of life. That's the first principle. The second principle is that we have to deal with areas of sin and compromise in our own lives. Just as as much as we want to help others grow in Christ as well. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Not afraid of awkwardness, is he? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's a big challenge, isn't it? That's a huge challenge for all of us to remove some things from our own eyes before we go and point something out in someone else's life. Thirdly, it's good to be angry when we see compromise and sin, but in our anger, let us not be those that sin. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So this is about speaking truthfully to those who are in the body of Christ. And then he says this, in your anger, do not sin. So it's not inherently sinful to be angry. It's okay to feel passionately and strongly about some things, but in your anger, do not sin. Fourthly, we've got to be those that go to our brother and sister. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you if they listen to you you have won them over but if they will not listen take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses this is something we really need to get a hold of hope church that when we when we see someone who is compromising who's sinning who's not going god's uh, way for them, that we actually go to them directly on our own first up. I have often been asked, I've been told about something that someone's picked up on says, can you go and have a word with them? And actually, I think I'm step three of the process that Jesus lays out here. Because after this, then he says, go to the elders of the church. And I'm one of the elders or pastors here. But actually, we're to go to our brother or sister and say, hey, I feel like there's something going on here and this is, this is not God's way. Do you understand? We, we go to them. And if they won't listen, we might take someone else along with us. And we help them. Because the fifth principle is in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You who live by the Spirit. It might say in your version, you who are spiritual. It might say in another version, you who are mature. A mark of a mature Christian is to look to restore brothers and sisters gently when they are in sin. Our heart is not kind of cancellation, but actually restoration. It's to help someone walk into maturity. To help someone walk into Uh, all the good things that God has for them, not to leave them kind of broken, not to leave them feeling like an absolute wretch, but actually to restore them gently. This is such an important principle. So we've got some wisdom in this book, friends. We've got some wisdom here with how to approach things when we see others caught up in compromise. The final one I just want to share with you is that Proverbs 19 says, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offence. And this requires wisdom, doesn't it? If we're kind of constantly finding that we're overlooking someone's offences, then maybe we're not actually adhering to the other things that I've just shared. But there are times when we just have to say, you know what, they're probably having a bad morning. They probably haven't slept very well. I can overlook that comment and I don't have to pick it up with them. There's a bit of wisdom required here, right? We need the Holy Spirit to help us and guide us. Because it's to a man's glory to overlook an offence and say, you know what, I'm not even going to be offended by it. I'm not going to take offence here. But there are moments when we have to bring challenge. Sometimes this path doesn't work out. All these things I've laid out to us doesn't work out. And 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 2 speaks of a a really difficult situation in the, the church in Corinth in Greece, that Paul was dealing with, where, where a man was sleeping with his stepmother and was seemingly quite okay with that. And the church seemingly were just kind of putting up with it, just saying, well, you know, it not be awkward if we go and challenge it, maybe. And Paul says, you know, they, this person clearly has not listened to people's counsel. And so his counsel to them is, put this person out of fellowship saying, okay, you're not part of this church anymore. Not fellowshipping anymore, so that, we read a few more verses later, that they'll come to their senses. Not so they're kind of just cancelled, but so they'll come to their senses and and leave behind the sinful and foolish behaviour that they're embracing. How on earth did it happen that that guy ended up sleeping with his stepmother and people didn't challenge it? Well, it was just like Nehemiah's day. People thought, I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm not going to be awkward here. It's not my place. No, no, it's our place, friends, because we're the body of Christ. We're a people together who want to help strengthen one another. Probably some people in Corinth thought, it's not really hurting anyone. It's two consenting adults. That seems to be the only basis now by which our culture will make choices on sexuality is two consenting adults it might actually be two or more consenting adults quite honestly, because there's an increasing thing of throuples and so on that's yeah, three people Um, it's consenting adults probably, that's probably the the, the basic sexual ethic of our, our nation now it's not really hurting anyone but Paul was really concerned that These were people who were bearing the name of Christ and going on as if that didn't really mean anything at all. He says, do not associate with the sexually immoral. And then he says, by this I don't mean the sexually immoral of the world. Because if I meant that, you'd have to take yourself out of the world entirely. So he makes that really clear. But he's saying if there's sexual immorality in the church, it's very serious. Don't associate with those people. So it's a a big deal. He wanted those that bore the name of Christ to live a certain way. To live a way that brought honour to him. So this is the process, friends. This is how we we deal with compromise. It takes compromise seriously. But listen, this story ends really, really badly. And um, you may not know this, but Nehemiah is the last recorded history that we have in the Old Testament even though it kind of comes halfway through the Old Testament. It's actually the last recorded history. So it's kind of like the last bit of the story for about 450 years before Jesus comes on the scene. So it ends really badly. But praise God, our hope is in the one who was, for them, was to come. Our hope is in the one who came, who never compromised. That's who our hope is in, friends. Friends. It's not in our ability to uh, not compromise. It's in him who never compromised. One was going to come into the world. A a greater Nehemiah was going to come to be the saviour of God's people. 450 years afterwards, born into obscurity, born into uh, a place where he was born amongst the animals. And he grew in in wisdom and stature and favor. And every year he would have visited Jerusalem with his family to attend festivals. And every year he would have seen compromise amongst the people of God. Every year his heart would have been broken as he grew up as a teenager thinking, This isn't right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Every year, just knowing, God the Father has sent me to be a saviour to these people and to the whole world. One day he would storm the temple with a whip and drive out the moneylenders and the people selling things. But in his anger, he would never sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it says this. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He never put a foot wrong. Never compromised. Tempted in every way, just as we are, to compromise. Never compromised. Never sinned. This is Jesus. This is the greater Nehemiah. Even in the heartbreak, even in the things that he saw amongst the people of Israel, he didn't sin. And the way he would deal with sin is the way that no one saw it coming. The way he would deal with sin would be that he would be beaten. That the The hair of his beard would be pulled out. That he would be cast out of the city to bleed and die on a cross. That he would be mocked and scorned. He would be rejected even by those that were his closest friends. This is the way Jesus ultimately dealt with sin. By becoming sin for us on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ, righteousness of God. This is the great exchange that took place on the cross. Jesus took upon himself the punishment for all our sin and compromise. This is what Jesus came. Listen, we we needed more than just a role model. Nehemiah was a great role model. A great role model for someone, getting a hold of God's purposes, leading God's people in prayer and in action, doing great exploits for God. But we needed more than a role model. We needed a saviour. Because in each of us, there is this kind of fleshly inclination just to kind of go with the things that we think will give us satisfaction, which actually don't things that we think are going to fulfil us, things that we think are going to give us joy and they leave us feeling empty. In each one of us, that is present. We didn't just need a good role model, we needed a saviour. A saviour who would die in our place and who would rise again, offering eternal life to all who would believe in him. That's what we needed, friends. And praise God, he was provided. And he doesn't just give us eternal life, he gives us new hearts, as we were hearing from Nick the other week. Hearts that want to serve him, that wanted to go his way. He puts his Holy Spirit within us, so that we have power to live for him. He's shown us such favour, that teaches us to say no to some things. Say, no, I'm not going that way. This is the glorious message of the gospel This is our glorious Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, who never compromised and who took upon our sin on himself. And we will still struggle with the flesh that at this time has not been fully uh, renewed. One day you're going to get a new body, which is great news for those of you who are feeling the creaks and the groans of your body. It's great news for those of you who live with disability and uh, serious disease. But it's great news for all of us because there will, day, there will one day come a time when uh, there will no longer be the sinful flesh that we will wrestle with. There will no longer be a day when we think, oh, there's this war going on within me. There will come a day we'll be given new bodies. And we'll live in a heavenly city provided for us. This new Jerusalem that is not going to even need locked gates. Because there's going to be no more sin. No more corruption. No more war. No more theft. No, none of this. This is the glorious news of the gospel. Nehemiah, he... he He gets the people to to make an oath in verse 25. I mean, you'd think that he would know by now that oaths are not really doing much for the people. (laughs) He gets them to make an oath. Just promise to God you'll never do it again. Promise to him you'll never do it again. But listen, no beating, no legalism, no oaths. They can't change your heart. We need redemption. We need rescuing from slavery to sin. We need new hearts. This is what we need, friends. Only in Jesus can this be found. We don't then enter into a life of legalism, of putting upon ourselves rules and these kinds of things, but we live a life that is lived by beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Day by day, beholding him. Day by day, hour by hour, beholding him. And as we behold him, as we Consider him as we dwell in our hearts on him. We are changed from one degree of glory to the next. This is how we change. This is how we put things to death in our lives. We behold him. It's him that we need to be captured by. It's a vision of him and this glorious gospel that needs to be the thing that is in our hearts. And then we say no to tempting compromise. We say no to going with the flow of this world. We say no to some things. And we help and restore one another when we do slip. Because we will. And you will. That will happen. And We restore one another. And we, we pray with one another. and We strengthen one another. But as we land in this series, there's so much we can be inspired by. Nehemiah took, got, a, got a hold of God's heart. And, and he rose up. And the people around him rose up, and they built, and they took a hold of God's vision, and they lived it out. Although, sadly, it did not end well. Friends, it will end well for us. The story will end well. We're rising up behind Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, who says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's no power in this earth that will cease or stop the momentum of Jesus' great building project in the world. He is about a great work. Let us be those that rise up behind him where we live for an eternal perspective, live for that eternal vision, live for a heavenly crown. You see, Nehemiah, throughout this chapter, he says, remember me, God. Remember me, God. He kind of wants to be remembered in some ways for the things that he's done. Listen, we're we're not living to be a hero in our own story. Jesus is our hero. We're following him. We're seeking to build (laughs) alongside him in what he is building in this world. And a time will come. You know, Jesus, like Nehemiah, Nehemiah went away and he came back and he found some things that were not good. Jesus has, has gone away. He's ascended to be at the right hand of his father. Praise God, we're not left as orphans. We have the Holy Spirit within us. God himself dwelling within us. But there will come a day when Jesus returns. What is he going to find? Will he find faith in us? Will he find us f- with our, our minds fixed on him? Friends, he's got a glorious future for us. I wonder if we might just stand together. We're going to sing in response, but I want to just pray for us. And pray that we will fix our minds and hearts on the great hope that is awaiting us. Fix our minds on the great hope of Jesus' return. He's going to come back. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He, he's going to re- return. And we all know it. It may be this year, it may be 50 years, it may be, may be longer, but he's going to return. Maybe we're those that live ready. May we be those that hold our hope close to us. I was hearing from some dear friends recently who have lost uh, their adult daughter, who was, uh, had young children, and who had gone through uh, cancer. This friend of mine had gone through cancer, and he, he said, we've got to be those friends who keep our hope close to us. We can't lose sight of it. Our hope is in Jesus' return. Our hope is in a, a, a glorious future with him. Let's be those that keep that close to us, see, we can lose sight of it, can't we? Let's be those that keep it close. We're going to be with him. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's fix our eyes on that great day. Let's lift our hands together. If you feel comfortable to do that, let's just pray to him. Lord Jesus, and we come to you now and we say, Lord, we love you and we want to be those that live for you. We want to be those that Deal with compromise in our own lives. And even now, Lord, would you just graciously put your finger on things in our lives that you want us to put away. That you want us to take off. That you want us to say, I am dead to that. Would you just do that now? Search me, oh God. Show me. When you just tell him that where you are. And Lord, we want to be a people who have a vision for who we are, not lose sight of that. We're your people, Lord Jesus. We're your bride. We want to be holy and pure for you. Lord Jesus, we've got a great wedding day to fix our eyes on. Lord Jesus, we will be united to you for eternity. We don't want to be caught up in other things. We don't want to have our foot in two camps. We want to be wholly yours. Would you help us to care for one another well, to to challenge, Lord, to bring loving challenge. Lord, where we see compromise. Lord, help us to be those that restore our brothers and sisters gently. Lord, take us forward in your purposes. Lord, we fix our eyes now on you, Lord Jesus. We fix our eyes on this great hope that is ours. We're going to be with you forever. We're going to see you, Lord Jesus. We're going to get new bodies, no longer corrupted. Going to be in a new heaven, new earth, not corrupted by sin. Lord God, help us to shine as your people. Help us to rise up in this town, in this area. Help us to shine as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. If you want to, if you mean this, say amen with me. Amen.